The Mysteries of Mither by the Story Archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obrolochon Carmody. Today we want to explore a mystery story. Well, imagine us all gathered together as if we're at the last chapter of a Poirot book or, or a TV court scene. But this isn't a murder mystery. Well, at least I hope not. But we want to tell you today about an unexplained disappearance, a vanishing, but a murder, well, maybe of reputation. We're going to be talking about Mither. Mither is best known for the complex and romantic story of Tokvark Edina. It begins with an almost fairy tale search for a bride, and it ends with the brutal destruction of the she mounds themselves. Now, we won't be able to tell you the whole story today. We did, after all, spend three entire story archaeology episodes on it. But we'll attempt to tell it in brief here. The story begins with Mither going on a visit to his foster son, Oingus. Now, he's already helped the young Oingus to get back his name and his correct titles, but that is another story. While Mither is on this visit, he accidentally gets in the middle of a bit of a sporting dispute and, as so often happens, loses an eye. Um, It'll all end in tears. <laughs> it all starts in tears, really. This is quite serious because Mither's been injured while he's under Oingus's hospitality and protection. And so he's owed compensation. Now, although Dian Keck, the physician, restores the eye... Oingus offers, well, he has to offer compensation, even so. And one of the things that Mither asked for is the most beautiful woman in the world to be his wife. No problem. This is Aideen, but she will require a very high, but she will require a very high bride price. Now, this is a bit like an inverted dowry. Basically, because uh, a young woman is such a great asset to the, to her family, they have to be paid off in order to get the woman to marry you. Well, her father requires the girl's weight in gold, but that's the easy bit. Absolutely. What he really wants is a, quite a lot of jobs doing around the house. Now, when you're a, a regional king, this means things like clearing stones off a wasteland, digging some wells, draining some bogs, you know, just little bits and bobs. Well, I'm no king, but I could do some with some of that work on my <laughs> Now, this is exactly the kind of job that you would give to Oingus's big daddy, the Dagda. Mither's got everything he asked for, but it's only on the day that he and Aideen leave for Breleth that we hear about Mither's first wife, Formnock. <laughs> He's already got a wife. Yeah. This is okay in terms of this story, but this particular woman is no pussycat. She's wise and learned and schooled in the magical art by Bressel, who had once been her foster father, or presumably still is her foster yeah. father. She was going to be a problem. <laughs> now, at first, she greets Sadine kindly, flatters the younger woman, and, you know, shows her the ropes. But it doesn't last long. Well, no. Um, as soon as Fumnoch gets Aideen alone, uh, she gives her a wonderful whack with a rod of Rowan and Aideen, lo and behold, turns into a pool of water. After which Fumnoch gathers her 
precious valuables and just walks off back to her foster father's house. And as the text puts it, from then on, Mither was without a wife. And I'm not surprised. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there because an unexpected thing happens. The heat of the fire in the house starts to condense and congeal the pool of water until all that's left is a little worm. And that little worm larva becomes an astonishing purple fly. Now, this isn't quite what Fumnock had intended. No. This fly is spectacular and unique and Mither loves it. She hasn't got rid of Aideen at all. (laughs) Nope. Fumlock, at this point, makes a bit of a show of offering an olive branch and arranges a visit over to Mither's to make peace. She is not going to repent of this deed and... She brings with her three heavyweights just to make sure that she doesn't bear the brunt of it. She brings Dagda, Lug and Ogma along with her as surety. She can't do better than that. No. (laughs) But when she sees Mither's obsession with this purple fly, she just loses it. She calls up a great wind and with her greatest spells blows the Aedeen fly away so that she can find no rest for seven years. Now, Fumnach is begged to bring Aideen back but instead she decides she's going to make another blast of wind even bigger than the first and that drives the fly along in misery and weariness until she finally lands on the roof tree of a big house in Ulster where she falls in exhaustion into the golden cup of the wife of Aether the champion from Inverkiachvina and this is in the province of Concover. And as you expect, the woman drinks the fly. And whenever a woman drinks the fly, <laughs> she becomes pregnant in all these stories. Yeah. And Aideen is reborn as her daughter and is called, yes, Aideen. What else would you call a child? And the last statement in this part of the story is that between her first conception and her second birth was a thousand years. Now, that was some storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had a big one here a couple of weeks ago, but at least it didn't last a thousand years. No, it only felt like it. So we pick up the story a thousand years later, as you do, and Aideen, the second Aideen, is growing up as the daughter of the champion Aether. She has no memory of her former life, but she's still very noble and what's more the most beautiful girl in Ireland if not the world and what's more she's still called Aideen bit of a giveaway one day she's out swimming with her friends and they see this absolutely drop dead gorgeous young warrior coming towards them oh he was indeed a fine man yellow hair bright as butter fell in silk waves over his shoulder bound with a golden band his green mantle hung all shimmering folds over his crimson tunic and the great brooch pinned at his neck was of good gold in shape like a leaping fish oh yes he was a fine man and finely armed as well a shield of silver sun-rimmed in gold was slung at his back and in his hand he held a five-pronged gold-banded spear Now, Aideen had seen so many fine warriors here at her father's court, but not one as noble as this. Not in this world, not in the mortal world. And then something remarkable happens. This gorgeous warrior starts spouting poetry, and this poetry informs Aideen and incidentally reminds the listener who she was and who she is. He addresses her as his bay finned, his fine woman. But there's more than this. The warrior also prophesies her future and the trouble 
that her new life is going to bring. Mither has found his Aideen, but there's still a problem. This being the most beautiful young woman in Ireland, if not the world, has already been promised to a rather important king of that region, and his name is Yochet. Now, his favourite stronghold is Dún Fravin in Tesfa, and it could be that this is the one that's joined to Brilles by the Corlee trackway. That's important. Yep. But there's a lot of trickery going on at this point. Mither takes the place of Yochid's brother, Ailil. No, not that Ailil. No. The way it works is that Mither has caused a serious, and I mean, like, serious life and death, serious lovesickness in Ailil. And Aideen, who is his sister-in-law, is nursing him. The difficulty is, though, that there's only one cure for lovesickness, <laughs> which is actually having sex with the object of desire. This sounds like a really good excuse. <laughs> oh, I know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was going to die. I'm going to die unless I can have sex with you. Yeah, don't fall for that line, anyone. But anyway, this is giving Mither a chance to get Aideen to himself. He manages well because eventually she agrees to go with him, but only if her husband allows it. Mm. So now he has to persuade Yochid to let her go. He comes to the king in all his other world finery and offers to play Fihil. That's a game a bit like chess, but it but isn't not chess. Not chess, not chess. The, the boards are completely different and we don't know exactly how it was played anyway. Okay. At first he lets Yochid win and the king gets loads of really magical stuff. There's one stake which includes a, a group of sheep each of them with red horns and three heads each. Well, so it's pretty odd. I don't well, see many sheep like that No, around. you'd have to write off or something like that usually, I'd say. Yokit realises that he's on to a good thing. And on his next win, he demands a very high price. Now, this is more land improvement. He and his brother both require bog drainage, rush clearing, or maybe it's rush harvesting, mm. and the planting of forests and, in Brefni. Yes, and the de-stoning of meads. But the final task is almost impossible and demands his magical abilities to the full. He has to create a road over Moyne Lovriga. Which is a big bog in the centre of Ireland around Longford. Mm -hmm. South Longford. Yep. But Mither has to do this in secret because it's going to require his otherworld skills and probably the help of a few strange friends. And so he demands that no one is allowed to watch him as he works this wonder over a single night. Jochid says, yeah, fine, no problem. But he does send a spy to go and see how it's done. Yes, he sends his steward, doesn't he? Yeah. It seemed to him as though all the men in the world had come to the bog. They'd all made one mound of their clothes and Mither went up upon that mound. Into the bottom of the causeway they put a forest, including its trunks and roots, Mither standing and urging on the host of every side. You would think that below him all the men in the world were raising a tumult. After that, clay and gravel and stones are put upon the bog. Now until that night, the men of Ireland used to put the strain on the foreheads of ox oxen. But it was seen that the folk of the mounds were putting it on their shoulders. Yocke did the same, hence he is called Yocke the Ploughman, for he was the first of the men in Ireland to put a yoke upon the necks of the oxen. Which is one of those wonderful little origin stories tucked away in the middle of a bigger story. And he's known as Yocke Arav, the Ploughman. But Mither knows that he's been spotted, and so he sneakily includes a flaw into the road so that it won't last long. 
Then they returned to their games of Fihl, with Yukut having won every game so far. But now it's Mither's turn. And what Mither demands for his stake is a kiss from Aideen and his two arms around her. Yukut has to agree to this, of course. But on the appointed day... A month ha- later. Yeah, he has his hall and his fortress strongly guarded, surrounded by soldiers, all waiting for this miscreant to appear. But that doesn't bother Mither. He just appears in the middle of the court, put his two arms around Aideen, and they instantly become two swans and fly away to Breless. And Yukut, though, does not give up. It's not completely the end of the story. Where the story ends is in enmity between the two tribes and indeed between the two worlds. But Aideen never returns to Yokid or to this world. Now that's not quite an ending because there is quite a lengthy postscript and it involves Yokid choosing an Aideen from a choice of 50 Aideens but ending up picking out his own daughter who is of course also called Aideen. Yeah, that's kind of unpleasant and what's more Yucca goes around digging up half the she mounds in the country so not a happy ending mm. and Mither's final revenge is telling Yukid that in fact the woman he is living with who he thinks is his wife is really his daughter mm-hmm. yes it ends up with cloning yes. and destruction <laughs> yes And that's the part of the story I think we'll be referring to as we examine the evidence further. Yep. That part of the story exactly expresses the problem, the way it ends with the destruction of the mounds, Mm. Mither's realm. In the first section of Tokvok Edna, Mither is very much part of the mortal world. But throughout the whole second part, he becomes increasingly separated and eventually an unknown and probably very dangerous antagonist. Mm. Yet Mither is one of the greatest figures of the other world. Uh, He has those giveaway golden sandals, Mm -hmm. he has the requisite yellow hair, all those things. Um, His name, Mither, it means balance, the middle, the judge. He is associated very closely with the Dagda and Oingus, who's the son of the Dagda, and who is Mither's own foster son, so he teaches him everything he knows. He's the judge who holds that fulcrum of the seesaw that is the world we know and the other world in balance. Now, my favourite story of Mither illustrates this perfectly. I'll tell it in brief. It's the story of Athenia the Unsociable. The story of Athenia the Unsociable. Athenia was a poet, with all that that entails. What's more, he was a king's poet. And a king's poet should be the first to set an example, to be aware of the importance of the law of the land and the laws of hospitality. But Athenia was greedy, and Athenia was selfish, and Athenia would share nothing. He kept to his house, hidden in secret. And the one thing he would never do was to share a meal with anyone else. So when it was time for him to eat, he would shut himself away, or even better, find a secluded place down by the river, hidden among the willows, where he could eat roast pig and drink wine in seclusion alone. But still he worried that others would find him, and others would demand to share whatever he had. Athenia knew that nearby, in a place called Breleth, there was a man whose name was Mither. Now, he was no ordinary man. 
This was the great judge Mither, the man who bridged the worlds, and Mither had many a magical item. Athenia was interested in Mither's three cranes, three birds, the cranes of inhospitality. If you tried to walk past them, you would be in for a shock. The first would say, keep walking. The next would say, nothing for you here. And the third would say very firmly, go away. So Athenia went and stole the cranes and set them up outside his own house. And soon nobody cared to visit him. But Athenia still kept to his old custom of going down to the river to eat in secret. One evening, while he was sitting by the river, he saw a man coming towards him, and this was no ordinary man, for he had the giveaway golden sandals and the golden band around his head and his hair free-flowing and golden. Now the man stopped and said, Athenia, will you share your meal? I will not, said Athenia, go away. Oh, you need to learn the laws of hospitality, said the stranger, and he reached out his hand, and the food leapt from Athenia's plate to the man's hand and then was gone. Athenia was very angry. If you do not give me my food back, he said, I will make a satire upon you. The man laughed and said, just try it. Give me your name, said Athenia. Now the stranger gave him a list of names. All of them seemed to be nonsense words. One could be translated as sharp lard, another as elope bowed. Well, certainly Athenia could make no sense of them. So he sadly had to give up the idea of making a satire. And the satire was on him. But the stranger was Mither. And Mither had hidden his own name among the long string of nonsense words. And his name was, what is owed is due. And that was hidden away among the other words. And that's the essence of Mither. What, what is, is owed is due. Is due. <laughs> But Togfark Aedina is really the only great saga where Mither is the main protagonist. He is clearly considered as a very old or ancient figure, given the patronymic in the Dinhenicus of Brie Less as Mither Mac Indri, which is great-grandson. This is the same name that's given to figures like Nades and Balor and a lot of those really distant ancestral figures. He's one of the very old. Yeah. So what happens? Where is he? Apart from one other story, The Wooing of Trevelyn, it's a great story but a bit complicated <laughs> to tell now. Yes. He's absent. He doesn't even appear in the story of Moitura. He's not anywhere. So who's disappeared him and why? So who has disappeared him and why? Well, the culprit has left fingerprints. Or perhaps I should say footprints. Great, big, squelchy, wet footprints. <laughs> the culprit could be... No. Could it? Yes, it is. It's Mananon MacLear. Now, that's unexpected. When I first started to explore our Irish mythology, I would never have believed that. Stories of Mananon were so memorable, so easy to find. There he was, this stranger from over the seas, this storyteller, entertainer, intervener, turning up unexpectedly interacting with so many characters in unusual and very imaginative ways. <laughs> There's Mananan in his wonderful self-propelling boat or riding the great white horse of the sea, Eanvar. So many stories. 
in one that we've talked about previously, he meets with Bran at the beginning of his voyage of discovery to the other world in the Imrov Bran and tells him of the coming of his marvellous son, the warrior poet Mungon, who's another great lost figure. We think he could be the template for the poet Taliesin and he could even be the origin of Glasgow's saintly founder, St Mungo, who, by the way, patron saint of adulterers. I think there's quite a lot of evidence for that. Oh yeah, that's one we're chasing up. Now, Mananan also appears to sort out a problem for Coquillan uh, after Fan, Mananan's wife, has fallen for the irresistible brat. Well, yeah. In the Shergula Coquillan, he waves a cloak of forgetfulness between Fan and Coquillan. There are a few later stories. Well, this Cormac's Cup is a story I'm very fond of. And... Cormac wants to be a good king. He wants to make good judgments. He wants to do everything he can to be this perfect king. And one day while he's going for a walk on the plains of Meath, he gets lost in a mist and find himself, finds himself in Mananan's realm. And uh, he's given an apple branch which solves his problems temporarily, but eventually he gets given this great cup of truth which falls to pieces if anyone tells a lie <laughs> and stays whole if anyone tells the truth. Yes. A bit biased in some ways, <laughs> but it does the trick. Mm. But Mananan? Well, there's also the later story still of the Carnac Quail Reevoc, where... This Kahernuk, this Kern in the striped coat rather than striped pyjamas, is parenthetically identified as Mananon. Now, he is the ultimate trickster. He travels around Ireland, Tuchel, by the way, left-hand-wise, sorting out problems with the weird and wondrous feats for various local lords. And there's one feat which is described the way we would now describe the Indian rope trick. Yeah, exactly. Sending people up into the sky from 17th century Ireland. (laughs) That's long before the English went off to uh, adopt India. (laughs) Now, if you've been following all the clues, you've probably deduced that apart from the enunciation of his wonderful poet son, Born to Bridge the Worlds, Mananan is sneakily acting as a judge. And that's Mither's job. Yeah, if we look at his uh, appearances, first in the Shergliga, the way that Mananon shakes this cloak of forgetfulness, which both connects and separates the world of Cúchulain from the world of himself and Fand, that's establishing an international border. Job of a judge. Yeah, and then in Cormac's Cup, he is very directly facilitating Cormac's ability to become the Irish Solomon, making good judgments, establishing the truth with this wonderful cup. But why is it Mananon who's teaching him and giving him this tool for great discretion and judgment? After all, Cormac gets lost in a magic mist in the Midlands. He's nowhere near the sea, which is Mananon's usual realm. Then we have the Cairnoc. It's a very light-hearted story and it's a, it's a late modern Irish romance. But still, every lord that the Cairnoc uh, visits gets what they deserve. In somewhat amusing ways. Yeah. What, what is, is owed is due. It's again. Yeah. So has the exuberant seaborn Mananan from distant isles really sneaked in and taken over the traditional role of Mither? Well... Members of the jury, I can offer you one more piece of evidence which might just swing it. There's an alternate version of the story of how Oengus gained Brunaboyne, uh, which 
we initially have as part of the opening of Tuckbark Agena. It comes up again in the middle Irish story, Altrum Tegadaw Vedder, which you like to call the house of the two buckets. Mm-hmm. So it's the fosterage of the house of two pails is what it literally means. Now this story is part of what we've called the Levergavola Strand, which is that slightly later synchronous strand. The story begins with Mananon being called in to give advice after the two of the Danon have been defeated by the Sons of Mill from over the sea. Mananon's advice is quite pragmatic for a defeated people. He basically says, run and hide, run and hide. Well, here is Mananon, also acting as a judge, dividing up the she-mounts. Yes. Mananon ordained the settlement of the nobles in their magic dwellings. He's also setting up traditions, including a curious one, which they call the Feast of Goifnu, for no discernible reason. And this is a feast that makes the two of the Danon deathless. I mean, was that necessary? Or or is it a classical influence? Mm. Uh, Mananan's renewable pigs, I suppose (laughs) they're a kind of Irish bacon ambrosia. I don't mean... No, Not rice, ambrosia. (laughs) Now, the other really important thing is that Mananan is now to have precedence over every wedding and the feast of every lord. Now, that definitely smacks of Dwar de Seigneur. Positively stinks of it. It's extremely feudal. Oh, it really is. Now the story moves into some familiar territory. Here's Elkvar. Poor old Elkvar. He never gets a good deal, does he? He is the keeper of Bruna Boyne at the beginning of the Tukvark Aegina. And it was he who was tricked out of this she by Oingus and the Dagda and their verbal trickery over days and nights. However, in Altrum Thicketal Vether, he's now Oingus's foster father, who was originally Mither, as we saw before. Mither has been cut out. Yes. The Altrum also tells how Oingus gains possession of the brew, but it is a different story. It's heartrending. It really is. In the first version, Elkvar is given a house of equal value. Absolutely. In this version, Oengus brings his foster father, Mananon, along to a great big feast that's being hosted by Elkvar in his wonderful house at the brew. Everyone is jealous, which is a bit weird. After the party, which naturally is at the end of the fourth day, everybody is passed out from enthusiasm, as my mother would say. (laughs) dead drunk. The only ones still standing are Mananon and Oingus. And Mananon starts pouring poison in Oingus's ear. First of all, he starts stoking Oingus's greed and jealousy and persuades Oingus that Elkfer is just not good enough. He's just not fit to hold on to the wondrous brew. He says that Oingus should summon Elkfer and just tell him to leave, and he's got a magic spell that will help him. He then reminds Oingus that they are not part of the everyday mortal world. So the laws don't apply to them. Yeah. You get the suggestion that what he says implies the folk idea that turns up later, that the mm. Tour de Donnan are actually fallen angels. Yeah. Who, not bad enough to end up in hell with Lucifer, but mm. left on earth. Yeah. And in fact, he backs this up. We are not of that origin, he says. But act on my advice this time. Yes. Oinga says he couldn't possibly do that. He says that if he usurped and got rid of his foster father, all fosterage would be undermined. 
But Manon's reply is what is so shocking. He's destroying the institution of fosterage. He's destroying the basis of all Irish law and tradition. Stop that, said Manonan, for a king is nobler than a kingdom and a lord than the heir. Your own will is better than your father or your mother's. Now, Coir is gone with that statement. The basis of Irish law and social structure is shattered. But Oingus accepts what Manonan has said, and the scene is terrible as Elkvar has to explain to his people why he's being forced to leave, why they are forced to leave. He's under compulsion to go. And poor Oingus is so horrified at what he has done, he tries to reverse the decision, tells Elkvar to return. But he can't. He can't come back. The spell compels him to leave. Yeah. Manonon here has become a feudal lord over his people. Well, members of the jury, that's a small part of our evidence. Mither, it seems, has been written out of the stories and Manonan set up in his place to take on the role of intervener and judge. But I think it's a setup. Manonan is what's known in American detective stories as a patsy. Manonon, lord of the Isle of Man, son of the sea and the mysterious isles beyond... He isn't supposed to be the judge who holds the border between the worlds. Manalon is a great character. After all, he's the father of the wonderful poet-warrior Mungon. He is supposed to be an upholder of natural justice and the truth of the king, the Coir. Yet, in this last story, Manalon is forced to undermine and destroy that very law which represents Mither's domain. There is a quatrain that's found towards the end of the wooing of Aideen. It goes like this. Foolish Fuamnock was Mither's wife, Sigval a hill with sacred trees, in Breleth a faultless, faultless arrangement, they were burned by Mananan. And the text says that this act took place long, long ago. We would presume in the thousand years while Mither is off hunting for his lost Aideen. Very suspicious. But who are the real culprits? Qui bono? If we give Manon the benefit of the doubt, who is it that set him up? Not the monks who faithfully recorded early Irish stories, retaining much pre-Christian detail, including passages that the Victorians found just a little racy. <laughs> oh, what would Lady Gregory say? I reckon she'd have loved it. I blame the Normans. Once... The Normans were establishing their influence in Ireland and trying to solidify it. The biggest barrier was actually native Irish law, which was at variance from Norman law. And so that native law had to be ousted and destroyed. And who represented that? Only Mither. He represented the judge of the native system. He had to go. And that left poor Manon as the fall guy there to do their dirty work. And the stories of Mither are lost. We will add information on the real road over Moynlovriga, the Corley Trackway Centre in County Longford, as well as a few more connected stories as accompaniments to this talk. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you.